Welcome back, Dreadheads. It is I, the Notorious GPB, here to give you another delightful, summarized adventure on the Dreadpenny's Adventure Hour podcast. Last week, we talked about Engines of Liberty, Rebel Heart, my debut novel from 2014. This is the sequel, Engines of Liberty, Suicide Run, talking about what happened after Calvin realized he'd been tricked into reporting to a remote camp in the Ohio country. We pick up immediately in chapter one with Godfrey Norrington. He was the young mage who stole the badge from one of his superior, uh, one of his superiors, excuse me. Uh, that would be Winston Fitznottingham. Uh, Godfrey got his badge and uh, he, he uses it to uh, access some of the secrets inside. Um, as part of the lore for this world, I just kind of established that the mages can uh, store information inside their badges uh, so that they don't have to keep it all front and center and organized in their minds, sort of like a hard drive. He finds out that uh, Fitz had a contact down in the Louisiana country, and uh, he takes a few days to get down there. There's somebody that he needs to meet who will be of value to him, a man who is a, uh, a sangromancer, a blood magician. Uh, he gets down there and he meets this guy. He's a tall, dark-skinned man with uh, white eyes. Uh, appears to be blind and yet appears to see a great deal more than he lets on. Uh, Sangromancy is one of the uh, lesser... Not, not like allowed. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not a popular type of magic and, and uh, you only deal with it if you're a bad person generally. This guy can see Godfrey. He can see what he is. And uh, he says, hey, I need to hire a Sangromancer who can help me find, um, you know, the, these rebels. Uh, Sangromancy is not something that Godfrey is well-versed in. And uh, so he's able to, you know, kind of deal with this, uh, this Sangromancer, this Swamp Dweller guy. Doesn't know that he unwittingly enters into uh, an agreement with him that will have uh, repercussions later on. And uh, he is on his way. That takes us to chapter two. Calvin, uh, we, we kind of check in with him, see how he's doing, how he's coping with uh, being tricked. Um, he gets along well with uh, the Rebel Hearts, with the other members of the 7th Mimic Brigade. Their names are Hank Duncan, the brigade leader, Adam Page, the mechanic, Emma Crosby, who's uh, one of the pilots. She's a, a very skilled operator. And Ingvar Prebenson, nicknamed the Techno Viking, he is uh, he's the heavy. He's got the axes and the tools, and he's the fighter, but he's also the tail gunner on a griffin mimic. Dragonlings are one-man mimics. Griffins are two-man mimics. You got a pilot and a gunner. That was the kind of mimic that Amelia McCracken's mom was on when she died. All right, so... Um, boom, 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 boom. They talk about the difference between uh, real mimics or real griffins and uh, the mimic griffins. Um, they they tell they swap stories about different encounters they'd had in past lives uh, before you know signing up with the army. How they all got there. Uh, there's a little note here on the fact that they refer to the country by the name America. They don't call it Columbia. They don't call it New England. Um, there are a lot of things that I just kind of passed off as like, well, it's 200 years after 1776, and so things will have changed, other things will have come into uh, popular usage, so um, anything that I 
that I use as like a world building kind of flavor giving giving thing for the story here. Um, I just assume like, well, you know, it wasn't originally like this and it just, it's one of the changes that popped up in the last two centuries. However, there is a real fact. Uh, there's been some minor dispute over where the name America came from for our country. Uh, we've been told popularly that it was a name given by Europeans uh, after an Italian cartographer named Amerigo Vespucci was the first to really map the land and bring news of it back to uh, to Europe. And so that name entered the popular vernacular. This is the land that Amerigo told us of or, or showed us and, and thus it was. Uh, however, there was also a Welsh explorer named Richard App Merrick who uh, kind of did a similar thing, maybe not on such a grand scale, but nationalism being what it was, the Britons would rather give credit to themselves than to uh, the Italian. And so Merrick, Merica, it just ended up being coincidental that, uh, that the name Merica was similar to Amerigo. Um, popping up in the third book, I will address this again because, in, again, in, in the real world, in real time, uh, there's a third possible explanation for the origins of the word America, and that is from one of the Scandinavian tongues, uh, the words Oma and Rika, uh, and I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering those, put together mean distant land. And so the Vikings would have called it Omerica, America, America. So three possible explanations of varying likelihood for the origins of that word. And uh, I just kind of addressed it as a world building detail in chapter two of Suicide Run. Um, the scene ends with them in the mess hall and uh, Calvin notices that Captain Hamilton is over at the officer's table near where the, where the rebel hearts are eating. And uh, he overhears him saying some things that uh, lead Calvin to believe that Hamilton thinks that once the war is over, he's going to go back to Mount Vernon and marry Amelia McCracken. So in addition to him just being a jerk of a commanding officer, Calvin now has a very personal reason for hating this man. Um, he, he's got it all arranged with the Commodore. Um, to give you some character detail on uh, Captain Hamilton, uh, I've got Calvin's age listed as 15 in this story. Hamilton is only 18, but he's a 10-year veteran. Uh, he was effectively a child soldier for the rebellion, enlisted at age 8 or compelled or pressed. I didn't really flesh that part of it out, but basically he got in there, he got very good at it, and at age 18, for more than half of his life, uh, his ex entire existence has been shaped by being in the military and being in uh, clandestine combat engagements. So think about what kind of effect that might have on a person's development. He's, he's very effective at his job, but he's not the most moral of men. Chapter three brings us to Amelia. Um, she's been told that Calvin deserted and uh, that he's gone and that he's not coming back. And, uh, the, the brothers are on deck, you know, fully reinforcing that story. Uh, chapter four takes us back to, uh, to Camp Liberty. And um, he's, Calvin's got a, a bit of a burr under his saddle with all this stuff. Um, he's still progressing through his training. He's learning how to work on the mimics and whatnot. Um, but then he finds out that there is 
a ham radio station in the base and that the bases use these to communicate from station to station and he's like well Mount Vernon must definitely have one so he starts plotting to get on the radio to find a way to contact Amelia chapter 5 we introduce two new characters Sophronia Brimble and Nigel Sharp they are faunamancers their magic is good for dealing with and communicating with animals um, they are the next stop on Godfrey's little campaign. He needs to find more reliable transportation than the uh, flying carpet he was using because it, it ran out of magic and fell apart. Uh, and they've got flying mounts. And uh, he immediately kind of becomes sweet on Sophronia, but uh, she's involved with uh, Nigel Sharp, the rugged British tar who flies the other wyverns. Well... Anyway, they hop on the wyverns. The, uh, they're they're kind of like dragons, but they just have two legs and the, and the wings instead of the four limbs and the wings. That's how I drew them in here. They get flying and uh, head towards the, uh, the Ohio country because that's where the Sangromancy is telling, Cal, uh, Cal, telling Godfrey where to look. Uh, chapter 6 brings us to... Calvin has broken into the uh, ham radio office. He beats up the ham radio operator and he finds a guide nearby that shows him uh, you know, how to operate it and, and how to call Mount Vernon. But, wouldn't you know it, Amy is not on the horn. Commodore McCracken is. So Calvin accuses the Commodore of doing all sorts of nasty things. He gets... Uh, he gets an earful from them, but there's an added degree of difficulty from here, from this. Uh, the mages, using their magic, can spot transmissions sent over the radio waves. So Calvin is broadcasting off schedule and uh, you know, during a, a dangerous time. And uh, wouldn't you know it, it's just as Godfrey is rolling in with the wyverns and he sees the signal and he can tell exactly where it's coming from. And he says, okay, boom, I've got the location of this base. He calls in for reinforcements using Fitz's badge, and uh, all of a sudden portals start to open up in, uh, this is in chapter 7 now, portals start to open up, and the Royal Mage Corps drops in. They find this base, even though it's in dangerous territory with all that iron and frosted iron dust in, in the area, they figure if they hit it hard and fast enough, uh, basically do a, a Blitzkrieg type strike, then they can neutralize the, the base. So... Now there's a big huge battle going on and one of the key developments here is that uh, you get to see the Technomancer arsenal kind of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with uh, what the, the mages bring to the table. I've got a really great illustration in this chapter of a clockwork giant fighting a, a troll. This was a, a drawing that I did twice because the first time it came out garbage. The second time I, I did it, it came out a lot better. Um, the other big revelation in this one is that the ground opens up and a giant mechanical dragon, like the size of a battleship, comes out. And uh, the Technomancers aren't thrilled that they had to play that card. They didn't want to have to reveal that. It just happened. Uh, you know, it, it was that or get annihilated. They bring out this giant mechanical dragon and uh, they use their arsenal to kind of fend off the British. A bunch of them get killed. A bunch of them get captured. But... Um, the, the, bulk, the bulk of the arsenal is able to, uh, to escape and repel the attack. 
but they've got to abandon Youngstown now because that uh, location has been burned. This brings us into chapter 8, and if you've looked up the cover art of this, you'll see Calvin kneeling on the ground, screaming at the sky, and there's a little golden device in his chest. Chapter 8 is where he gets that device installed. Um, he gets brought up before Captain Hamilton and Major Tyler, and uh, he finds out what they're all about, and uh, they're not sure what to do with Calvin. Um, if they if they execute him, they think it's just going to be bad for morale, and they've got that to consider because they're about to be a, a big, heavy army marching on foot. They're like, oh, well, we've we've got an idea here. Hamilton has a nasty little device that he's concocted. It basically is a, an electric bomb that is powered by the currents inside the human heart. And so he straps Calvin down to a table and rams this thing into his heart. And uh, then they go in and uh, drop him off in the woods. They tell him that uh, this is a, a control device. If you try to pull it out, it'll go off. If you try to mess with the mechanism, it'll go off. Basically, we're going to set it to X amount of days. You've got this long to run on foot and warn uh, a nearby base. Basically, they, they give him an impossible job. This is the eponymous suicide run. And once, excuse me, once they drop him off, they don't decide, or he doesn't decide to like, well, I guess I better go do this and see if they can save me. He does some calculations in his brain, and he's like, if I run all out, I can make it back to Mount Vernon, and I bet Amelia could get this thing out of me. If not, she needs to know the truth because, hey, he's 15, and uh, while he is smart in some ways, he does lack wisdom in others, and uh, this is where his 15-year-old brain decides to take him. Um, during the installation process of this device in his chest, he passes out, and I use that as a, uh, a chapter to kind of check in on the other rebel hearts. Uh, Stitch and Rusty... Um, Rusty came from a family of means. Stitch worked with one of the servant families. Um, you find out that uh, her family was sympathetic to the Technomancer cause, and they ended up getting raided, and a bunch of them got killed by Brits, and, and Rusty and Stitch were the only ones to escape, and they, uh, they found their way in with the Technomancers later. They've been relegated to uh, a, uh, basically a, a junkyard camp where they are decommissioning old mimics to uh, to put together better ones. Um, Stitch is perfectly content with that. He's used to a life of servitude, but uh, Rusty wants to do something more. Foreshadowing. Um, the next two we check in with are Cohen and Avery. Uh, they both got assigned to a certain contingent that's heading south to what is still um, Spanish-occupied North America because they both speak Spanish and they, they do a little bit of uh, getting to know each other and, and explaining, you know, kind of their backstory and how they both learned how to speak the language. And then the last two we check in with are uh, Edsel and Lila, and they are uh, replacing Calvin in the Rebel Hearts as some of the bases are getting merged along the way. They are part of the 7th Mimic Brigade now. Um, something significant that happened during that battle at Youngstown was that Hank got his hand cut off. But in this scene, as uh, Edsel and Lila are introduced to the Rebel Hearts, um, Hank has both hands back. Uh, I don't immediately explain why that is, but that is something else to be foreshadowed. That was Chapter 9. Chapter 10 is um, Captain Hamilton dumping Calvin in the woods. 
and Calvin deciding instead he was going to run to Mount Vernon. And that uh, brings us to chapter 11. I'm trying to remember how many chapters I wrote for this one. I want to say it was 18. You would think that I would know, but it has been a while since this one came out. Uh, I, I published this one in the beginning of 2015. That kind of timed it specifically to come out on my mom's birthday. Yep, chapter 19. So we're halfway through the book just with this bit of the summary. So uh, he runs all out for two days. Uh, he's not able to go as far as he thought he would. His legs are hurting. Sorry, I don't mean to be yawning on you. It's cold in my office. Uh, on the third day as he's going, going, going... <laughs> I'm kind of glad that I used professional editors for this book because uh, one of the things that they wanted me to check was um, like what they wanted me to put together a calendar. Like what was the first date in Rebel Heart, what was three weeks from then, and so on and so forth. Because if I was going to have Calvin running through the woods for nine days, I needed to keep track of what was going on elsewhere and how long and, and, uh, and all that. Well, he comes along, he comes among a camp out in the wilderness and... Uh, it's, you know, between the trees, between the bushes and all that, there's some big tents and some fire pots. And there is a gigantic, like the size of a van, uh, bird tied to the ground. Um, it has been caught by, by poachers and uh, he's, he's not sure exactly what it is, but it is, it is in the, the magical fauna side of, of things. Um, I briefly take a break in this chapter for uh, for a quick check-in with Godfrey and Calfu. Um, Godfrey says, hey, yeah, I found him, but but he got away and it caused even more trouble. And Calfu's kind of pleased with this and uh, he's going to do an even stronger bit of tracking and stuff. But uh, again, he's he's making blood deals with Godfrey that Godfrey doesn't know about. And that's going to cause him trouble later on. Uh, quickly, we check back in with Cal, and uh, he's he's starting to get images in his brain that are are not his own, and uh, he he quickly realizes that it's it's uh, coming from the bird, the the gigantic bird that was captured, is psychic, and uh, he needs Calvin's help to escape, but uh, he's been captured by um, you know magical blood poachers that were uh, you know French and Iroquois. Calvin goes into their tent. He finds that there is a, a vial of blood in a, uh, in a strong box. He's able to get it open and throw the blood vial into the fire. And then uh, he starts to, to cut the bird free. He makes a deal with the bird. Says, hey, you know, you can fly. Can you carry me out of here and I'll, I'll help you? And the bird's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he unties it and uh, they escape camp just as the, the poachers come back. Um, Calvin hops on the bird's back and uh, falls asleep and then when he wakes up later he finds out that the bird is flying in the wrong direction. It's not flying him east towards Mount Vernon like he should be. Um, that's a, in chapter 12 we realize that yeah he's in he's headed in the wrong direction. Uh, when he confronts the bird about this mentally the bird says that uh, you know that blood wasn't mine that blood belonged to my mate. Um, they captured both of us and I needed to make sure I came back to make sure that, you know, I had destroyed it so that they couldn't get to her and they ended up capturing me instead. And Calvin's like, well, I need to get to my woman. And the bird's like, yeah, I don't care. I needed to get to mine. <laughs> and uh, Calvin ends up falling off the bird and into a river and the bird flies away. So he's he's quite upset about that. Um, 
so he, he swims out of the river and uh, gets on shore and wouldn't you know it, he gets captured by other mages. And this is where we run into Hammond Burtwistle, the other of the three mages that Calvin fought in the woods at the end of Rebel Heart. Uh, he's, he's scarred, he's damaged, and he's on uh, prisoner duty. He's pulling a, uh, an enchanted carriage behind him. He's basically just you know pointing his wand at it and making it work. He's got two other mages with him. Um, they capture Calvin. They put these uh, tattoo glyphs on his wrist that kind of paralyze his hands so that you know, he, he can't escape. And they throw him back into, uh, into the carriage and um, he finds out that there are three other passengers there that these mages have captured uh, the, the recruiters, the ones that recruited Calvin at the beginning of the, the last book. So he kind of gets to give them a piece of his mind, yell at them for you know how the army has treated him, and he finds out that uh, they didn't actually fight the other mages and recover the gold that had been stolen from his family. They just gave him a similar amount of gold and and you know, did whatever they could to recruit him because it's all the same to them. And uh, you know they're like, hey, you know we need to build an arsenal. We uh, we didn't have time for you to be okay with it. We or not the arsenal. We needed to put the, uh, an army together. So he's definitely not losing any love with these guys. Um, well, then we take a quick break from that perspective to hop over to see what uh, what Amelia is up to, and she, strangely enough, is having a dream about Calvin and giant birds and. Not sure what that's all about. Uh, just to clear the air on, on this right now, um, Amelia doesn't have any magical abilities. Uh, the Technomancers, by and large, don't. But uh, it's got more to do with the birds and what they are, what they're all about. She wakes up from the dream, and then she hears voices in the house, and it's the middle of the night, and uh, she realizes that uh, her brothers are getting a visit from one of their many spy contacts out in the world. Uh, this is a woman named uh, Contessa Delinois. She's a, a Haitian member of the, uh, the Technomancer army, and she's coming with intel. She's basically filling the role that Jack Badgett used to play before he got cursed and, and died in the last book. So Amy crawls through some, some crawl spaces in Mount Vernon and uh, is able to kind of get an ear into her father's office as Peter and Brian escort Contessa there, and she tells them that... Uh, yeah, the base at Youngstown got wrecked, and um, the mages now have an idea of how big our army is, and they've sent in um, Hessian mercenaries and uh, Scottish Highlanders. Um, this is where I'm going to kind of pause and, and say one of my favorite reviews on Amazon for Rebel Heart was one that said, uh, this is American history on acid. It's all there, but strangely different. Um, I did a lot of research into the American Revolution so that I could kind of have this series parallel that. And so, uh, you know, the Brits obviously did use Hessians. They did also use Scottish Highlanders. They, they hired Scotch mercenaries to, uh, to kind of come help break up the rebellion. But I've got them serving a different purpose uh, in this series. Uh, as the briefing ends... Um, Peter and Brian escort Contessa to a guest room where she'll be able to sleep and recover before she heads back out in the morning. Uh, and then Commodore McCracken calls out to Amelia because he knows that she's there. They have a, they have a sweet talk. Um, I wanted to have their relationship still be good and not have him be like, you know, evil father figure, tortures, uh, strong-willed, rebellious female 
child. It, it's, you know, he, he does love her, he does care for her, and he doesn't want to lose her the way that he lost his wife. Um, but she's starting to tell that uh, he's lying to her about what happened with Calvin and, and so on and so forth. Um, that's going to be kind of key for her development for choices that she makes later on. Uh, now we meet up again with Godfrey and Calfu. They've grabbed the help of a pictomancer, a man named Thierry Enjolras, uh, a Cajun former prisoner. Pictomancy is uh, the art of using pictures and drawings to uh, bring magic to effect. He has a lot of really cool tattoos on him, animals tattooed on him that do different things. You know, a tattoo of a wolf, he can, he can cast a, a spell that makes the tattoo jump off and become a real wolf and things like that. Uh, they end up tracking Calvin because they remember they're still using a blood magic spell to track Calvin. Um, there's something about his blood that Calfu seems to want. Um, Godfrey just wants you know the other information that he can torture out of Calvin. Uh, using Thierry's magic, they're able to uh, to surround the prison carriage that Hammond and and uh, the other mages are leading. And they end up killing them and trying to uh, capture Calvin. And Calfu tries to to do something to Calvin, try to try to get a sample of his blood for reasons that are not entirely clear. But wouldn't you know it, to the rescue come two giant birds. One of them is uh, the one that Calvin rescued, and the other one is the mate. Their names are Caracua and Anita. And they are not just giant birds of any kind, they are thunderbirds. And uh, they can do this thing where they, they draw in a deep breath and let it out, and uh, it explodes like a thunderclap and shatters anything in front of it. They kill Enjolras, Godfrey dies, Calfu dies, um, the only ones left really are, are Calvin and uh, the three recruiters. He stares them down and uh, in chapter 15, um, he lets the recruiters get away. They said, no, you got to come with us. He's, and the birds are like, yeah, no, he's, he's free to do whatever he wants. And so the recruiters leave and Calvin's there with Karakra and Anita. Uh, and basically Anita explains like, yeah, my, my mate came for me, but when I read his thoughts and saw what he'd done to you, uh, I said we had to come back and help this man that helped us. And uh, so they end up flying Calvin a, a great distance far to kind of make up for the, uh, the ground that he didn't cover over the last few days. They fly him to Camp Winchester. They are very wary of human contact. They, they like to stay hidden, but... Uh, they won't, so they won't fly him all the way to Mount Vernon, but they will fly him to Camp Winchester, which is close enough that he can then get some help and, uh, and get over to Mount Vernon. But this is where I bring us a, an interesting perspective in chapter 16. Um, even though Godfrey died, uh, he is walking all the way back to Louisiana. He has been kind of zombified. He doesn't realize this, but uh, he was prevented from dying all the way due to some of the blood curse debt stuff that, uh, that Calfu did to him. He, he walks all the way back to Calfu's uh, swamp. He goes into Calfu's basement and there are jars and potions and things. And you know he, he doesn't realize, or, or at this point he does start to realize that uh, he is just a corpse and that his puppet strings are being pulled by the unseen ghost of Calfu Laveau. In addition to being a sangromancer, Kalfu was also a necromancer. And uh, Godfrey is now kind of one of his slaves. Godfrey casts some spells to uh, 
kind of fortify himself, make his body stronger again, and add some new magical disciplines. He's able to now do Pictomancy, and he's got all of uh, all of Thierry Angelra's Pictomantic tattoos, uh, in addition to several others. And he's able to do Sangromancy and Necromancy. He thinks it's his own, but he's actually being controlled by Kalfu. Kalfu really wants Calvin's blood. There's something special about him. I'm going to say that until it really sticks into your head. So now he is on to track down Calvin. Chapter 17, or excuse me, chapter, uh, the other part of chapter 16 here. Um, Calvin goes to, uh, to wait a minute, Camp Winchester. He borrows a mimic from them. That's right. We meet a man named Major Yahola. He's in charge there. Calvin's able to kind of BS his way into getting a, uh, a, a dragonling mimic, and he flies that full throttle to Mount Vernon. Um, but he gets there, and instead of meeting with Peter and Brian, or excuse me, instead of meeting Amelia, he gets tackled by Peter and Brian, and they throw him into the same brig that he was in in book one. Meanwhile, Godfrey is also on his way to Mount Vernon, hopping portals and stuff, but along the way, his new necromantic powers advise him that there is something underground on the way to Mount Vernon of interest to him. It is a traitor's grave. Uh, during the original revolution in the 1770s, uh, a whole bunch of rebel soldiers were uh, caught, executed, or uh, buried alive all in the same place. And deep underground, there are some, uh, I can't remember the full number that I put in here. I want to say it was 300. It could have been fewer than that uh, of these skeletons that um, are kind of calling out to him, calling out to his, uh, his necromancy. And he's like, hmm, interesting. I can do something with this. This particular part of the book the next few chapters are going to be uh, of, of great significance for what's going to happen in Howling Wilderness for what goes on at Mount Vernon. Uh, so pay attention to that because uh, I want you guys to, to see uh, just what I'm setting up here. Um, so Godfrey does some, some necromancy and all of these skeletons come up out of the ground and they've got this weird red light glowing in their eyes and he's like, okay, perfect, I have an army because uh, I have a feeling that wherever Calvin is, he's going to be fortified, and I, I really need some, some backup here. Um, so Calvin's able to, uh, to start to escape from the brig. Um, he's able to cut his bonds free, but uh, then all of a sudden, um, Mount Vernon comes under attack by an army of 300 skeletons, and uh, there, there isn't currently a, a camp of Technomancers training there, it's just the McCrackens. And so they go to battle, and uh, Commander or Commodore McCracken goes up on the cupola of the house, and uh, there's a machine gun up there. He starts mowing them down, but unless he like completely dismantles their bodies, they can just keep coming because they're, hey, they're already dead. Uh, he ends up having to sacrifice himself uh, so that he doesn't get caught and turned into a thrall. He's got to set up a grenade up in the cupola to make sure that he's completely blown up. Um, Amelia finds Calvin. She lets him out of the brig. Um, they run into the woods where uh, Commodore McCracken's personal mimic is. It's a wyvern mimic. It's a vessel that's big enough that they can go inside and fly out like a small plane. And uh, the house gets engulfed in flames. Peter and Brian are able to escape. Um, flames are the one thing that uh, kind of undo the necromantic spell on, the, on the, the skeletons, on the thralls, as they're called. And that starts to weaken Godfrey, so he, uh, 
he recalls the magic that he used to, uh, to animate them and they all kind of fall down. And then he uses pyromancy to put out the fire. But by then, Commodore McCracken is dead. Peter and Brian are AWOL in the woods. And Calvin and Amelia are flying away on the Wyvern Mimic. And Calvin has escaped him once again. But Godfrey is uh, interested in what he finds in, in Mount Vernon. There is an entire library there, as well as a bunch of secret Technomancer documents and, and some other things. And uh, he finds out what the Technomancer's plan is, the, the, what, where they're going to attack, where this big attack is going to be in the next couple of weeks. And uh, in addition to that, he's decided he's no longer satisfied with trying to get back to England. Um, there is enough power in play here that if he plays his cards right, um, he could become a new king in the New World, uh, strong enough even to rival King Charles. Of, uh, of Britain. So the book ends with um, Calvin and Amelia landing the Wyvern Mimic in a swamp somewhere and um, she's able to get the device out of Calvin's chest just as it's about to go off and kill him. It's, it's leaving him weak. Uh, and so she gives him some first aid and uh, he goes to sleep as he starts to recover from his injuries. And she looks out the window and tries to reconcile herself with, uh, with the new realities of the world around her, that uh, reconcile herself to the, the realities of the new world. R rather, uh, the fact that her family's gone, Mount Vernon's gone, Calvin's almost dead, and uh, they're not sure what is going to happen next. And that is the end of Suicide Run. Calvin and Amelia are back together, but at great cost. And, uh, wow, that was quite a lot. I did not expect that to take, well, maybe I did expect it to take half an hour because the last one took 20 minutes. So, uh, the final book, you can kind of expect that to be about a 40-minute episode. I'll, I'm going to have to recover or record that one in, in stretches because Patriot's Game is a very long book. I, I have a lot to satisfy here. But uh, I think you're going to dig it. So, thank you guys for listening. If you've got any questions, hit me up, dreadpennies at gmail.com. And we will see you next time. Drive safe.